welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Well, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Code Curtis. I'll get my name right this time <laughs> with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. And Ben, we're joined live on Zoom by Gary Goro from Byron Bay. Welcome, Gary. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. We're really, really interested to explore this topic of meditation and mindfulness. But mm-hmm. a good place to start, as always, is a little bit about you and your journey that got you to where you are today. That's yeah. How do you start? That's such a um, difficult thing. Do you want to start at conception or <laughs> let's, get started, get let's keep it PG, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are an explicit rated show. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I, as a as a young kid, I was always I think a deep thinker. My parents thought, especially my mum, she noticed that quality in me and really fostered that spiritual side. She was certainly on that journey herself. My dad was more a practical man, an entrepreneur. He was sort of self-made and believed in sort of carving your own path on this planet. So I think I I inherited both sides of that. But also grew up in a culture where spirituality wasn't really a a feature. You know, it existed, but in the the distant periphery. And um, culture I grew up in was more about was on the, you know I was on the beaches as a surfer, a young fella growing up, and you know the the people I I admired and respected were either great athletes, sportsmen, or they were good at fighting or picking up girls or drinking, and mm. so you kind of tend to want to mimic what you see, but that uh, it didn't seem to be a good fit for me. I always felt like I could do those things, but I didn't enjoy doing those things, and so it wasn't until you know, somewhere in my, you know, late teens, I started to explore spirituality in earnest and got to a point where I considered like giving up my material life and going and living in India and finding a guru and, and taking that path, which is what I was reading about a lot. And mm-hmm. I have to say, I did I did feel quite charmed to do that. Um, but then fortunately, I, I, I guess I found my guru and he was a very worldly man. He was what we call a, a householder and very much had his feet on the material world, but very, you know, highly spiritually evolved human being. And he taught me the the path of integration, you know, being someone who um, is in the world but not of the world in many ways, can play the game, can do the dance and um, can fulfil the responsibilities that, that you have as a human being and a man, et cetera, but also being deeply anchored in, in a spiritual plane. and so. Um, yeah, when I was in my when I was twenty one, I, I I was initiated by him, and he took me under his wing, and yeah, I learned with him over many many years, and graduated to as a I guess a teacher myself some time ago. Gary, what is spirituality? Um, we hear the term a lot. Uh, often, it's associated with uh, religion in in some contexts. What what does it mean to you? And you've you've spoken about your becoming aware of spirituality and your voyage yeah. to where you are now. What what? How would you define it? Well, I think it's good you made that distinction between religion and spirituality because mm. um, they can be the same thing, but they can be very different things. You know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I yeah. don't follow any particular 
doctrine or dogma. Um, I believe spirituality relates to a direct experience you have within yourself that's of a sacred nature, something that you experience that is beyond the five senses, something that's intimately personal, which connects you with something beyond your own thoughts, beyond your mind stuff, beyond the patterns of, you know, your, your thinking and your culture. And, and is there's it something rich, something deep. Sorry. Is it exclusively individual? Can you have a collective spiritual experience of the way you've just described? Um, for me, I believe it's all sourced in a personal experience. If you're not having a direct experience of that, mm -hmm. then you have knowledge of something. You can have the knowledge that there is this Tao, this oneness, this infinite, this unboundedness. But unless you're having a personal experience of that kingdom of heaven within you, it's just on the level of your intellect. So I believe the essence of spirituality is a direct experience mm -hmm. and the movement towards that. And that can be like a mystical experience, but it can also be on the level of your humanity becoming a better person, you know, becoming kinder, compassionate, more understanding, more controlled within, you know, you're not someone who's governed by your emotions, your programming, you're not someone who's highly reactive. So that's also, mm. for me, the, there's a direct spiritual experience and then there's a spiritual path. And I would say that, um, you know, often people are on a spiritual path towards, you know, a more elevated experience within their consciousness. Mm -hmm. And once you've had that experience, then your life is by definition all spiritual. You know, because you're living, you're the embodiment of it. It's just everything you do is, it's, you know, it's infused with, you know, your, yourself, your being, your, your true nature shining forth. And that is, that, is that often, I've heard people refer to this catalytic moment where they have an experience, they become aware of spirituality. And I'm mm. super interested in talking about psychedelics because you, you hear a mm. bit about that as a, as a, uh, or associated with there. that, yeah. yeah. But mm -hmm. is it is it always a catalytic moment, or can it be developed over time through practices like meditation, which we're going to talk about? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's like a flash. Yeah. You know, you get someone like Eckhart Tolle who has this awakening, and he never returns to his old self. Mm. And then other times it's like the dawning of the sun. You know, from complete darkness through this, you know, grading up of the light of consciousness. And it's more the latter, which is the common experience. Um, there's very few people that experience spontaneous enlightenment like that, yep. where it just comes from, from nowhere that they intended. Most people are developing and raising their consciousness in a, in a conscious way, you know, intentionally. And my last dumb entry-level question, this concept of nirvana, is that the, the concept of enlightenment? That would be, yeah, based in the Buddhist philosophy okay. that there is this state beyond suffering, you know, beyond duality, but, and it's that which is the essence of all religions, all, all wisdom traditions and, you know, those, those supreme philosophies, is that the ground state of all existence, of all being, is this pure field that's divine and it's timeless and formless and it's ancient, it's inexhaustible, you know, there's this, there's this unified layer to, to life. And we experience through our five senses the diversified layer. We experience separation. And so it's really learning to return and go inward and get into that subtlest layer of your own being where you get direct knowledge of the unified aspect of who and what you are, like a, a, a wave on the ocean. Mm. Some really beautiful threads there. Yeah. Let's ask the big question, though. 
what is meditation? And I know that this word mindfulness has been used a lot in the recent past. Could you talk yeah. about what's meditation and what's mindfulness and how the two mm. might coexist or not? Yeah, that idea of mindfulness, a lot of people don't understand, but that that isn't a Buddhist teaching. It was a, a term that was, I guess, created through a Westerner who was practicing Buddhism and sought to, I guess, define or categorize the, the practices. So, you know, this term mindfulness was born. And, you know, it's a beautiful term. Um, the, I often describe it to people, that for, for me personally, the difference or the distinction I make between meditation and mindfulness, and a Buddhist person would reject this, but is that meditation is really the act of turning the awareness deep within and learning to transcend learning to go beyond one's mind, thought forms, their patterns, all of those things which define us as human beings and learning to get in touch with the essence of who and what you are. So turning the awareness towards that place and just surrendering everything else. Mindfulness for me is where having become grounded in that expanded state of your own being, you're bringing that awareness to bear on all of your everyday waking activities. So there's an eyes closed practice, which is, you know, intimately devoted to transcending and then the eyes open one, which is about bringing that transcendence out mm. into your waking active life. So you're attempting to incorporate into just the very workings of your everyday life, this sacred nature, you know, this reverential aspect. For me, that's the distinction between the two and mindfulness could be anything. You know, you could have mindless sex where you're just wanting to get off and it's all about you, or you could be very mindful where you're enjoying the real deep intimacy and the love that's available there. Mm. You could be washing up the dishes and just sort of be rummaging through your day, or you could be really connected with that act of, you know, the warm water streaming over the plate in your hands. Like everything invites you to, you know, become mindful or mindless. And mindfulness is just that conscious approach to, you know, merging your waking mind with with just the present moment itself. Mm. And we can be very dismissive of the beautiful but simple things in life. And I've been mm. undertaking a daily practice that's probably definitely mindfulness, <laughs> um, where I seek to find beauty in ugly things. So this mm. morning I was exploring this really complex arrangement of bark on a tree and the way mm. that different bits of bark related to each other and the bark on the ground and the history behind this tree that must be decades old and what it's experienced. And I just was focusing my attention there. You've taught a lot of people to meditate. And so for the uninitiated that perhaps don't have a meditation practice, how do you get started, Gary? Mm -hmm. So I guess to sort of orbit back to that question you asked, what is meditation? I'd say there are many different forms and approaches. You could think there are, I guess, different categories. Some meditations are very concentrative or they're based on focus and controlling the mind by giving it a single point of attention. Maybe it's focusing on your breath, your third eye, a candle, something like that, with the intention to get the mind to stop wavering because, you know, there's that crazy monkey mind, you know, that just kind of runs around and chases thought after thought after thought. <laughs> so the concentrative practices are really about rehabilitating and anchoring the mind more and more in the moment, creating steadiness. And then there are contemplative practices, which 
sort of associate a little bit to what you just mentioned where you're using your visionary creative mind and you're using certain thoughts and ideas to awaken a certain sensibility or a feeling or a mood or a connection of some kind. Like you could say to somebody, um, you're connected to all that exists. You're woven into the entire web of life. Feel yourself connected to all things in your environment. And then someone will start to feel like their mind is stretching into that reality or into mm. that story. Um, and you could equally say the opposite and then you could make someone feel afraid or sad or something. <laughs> so the mind's very suggestive. So contemplative ones are suggesting certain qualities and trying to evoke that within the field of potential that the mind is. The technique uh, the, that I teach and, and practice is more about going beyond mind and thought altogether and going into the, the beyond into that transcendent state, that state of um, no mind, no thought, no stuff, just state of pure awareness. Which I assume isn't entry-level sort of meditation. So I assume that requires you to have been able to clear your mind, get rid of the chattering monkey and um, then get yeah. into that. It's, it's good that you say that. I mean, the, the, the answer is no, it's for anyone who wants to learn to meditate. There's just... This is a very, what I teach is a very ancient technique. It's like comes from a very particular lineage that originates in the Himalayas of India and it's 5,000 years old and, and it's a mantra-based practice. Yep. So you receive a specific mantra, you're initiated into the technique and then you learn how to use that mantra to, to uh, experience deep meditation. But the thing is the mantra is doing the work for you. It's like, you know, you, you throw someone in the ocean with a buoyancy vest on and they're just going to stay on the surface. But if you suddenly take that off and put a weight belt around them, then they're going to be able to go into the deeper levels of that ocean. So the mantra acts like the weight to pull the mind inward. Mm -hmm. And so it's a completely effortless technique that is, is, is entry level, okay. but is also highly advanced and, and, and science-based also. We're believers in, in breathing and breath work. We're daily practitioners in that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk to us about breathing and breath work and how it's incorporated into meditative. Um, mm. Yeah, I think there's been this surge, especially in the last, I, you know, you, if you, when you're watching the collective, there are these things that sort of emerge from within it. And meditation back in my day was just something that no one even knew about. Um, mm. And it was, you know, being, I'm glad I was young and just naive because, you know, having the idea to carve out an existence, teaching people to meditate, you just, I had to have been insane looking back on it, but it worked. Um, so meditation came really, I think, in the last, say, five, ten years. It's really taken, taken the stage of the collective sort of vernacular and, I guess, aspiration also. But in the last couple of years, more so, breathworks become this real wonderful tool that people can utilise to elicit different psychophysiological states. And... There's a lot of uh, shamanic breathwork, which I'm sure that's what you guys have been talking about, and even Wim Hof, who borrowed a lot from mm. the, the Buddhic, Buddhists and the yogic practices and modified them slightly, and he's showing the power of what the breath can do to the autonomic nervous system and, you know, being able to dive under lakes of ice and not need any um, you know, apparatus or, you know, dive into freezing waters and find your core temperature doesn't rise. So this is all utilising primarily the breath. And there's a branch of um, Vedic science, you know, which 
it stems from the yogic practices, which is uh, of pranayam. So they're working and using the breath in particular ways to trigger certain physiological changes to take place. And so it's always been part of the ancient practices. Um, and it, I guess you could say they're either making the body very vital or they're waking up the subtle body and charging the different energy centers of the body and clearing the chakras, or they're working to really calm the nervous system to lead the body into deep meditation. Mm. So the breath can be used in a number of different ways to, you know, elicit whatever response that you're, you're desiring. I'm, I'm personally fascinated by these things that we can do, that we can actively control, like our breath or our body position, but that have these deep, uh, or the ability to trigger physiological responses, they can lower cortisol, they can, you know, calm down our emotional state. And I'm fascinated to read some emerging research, which we'll link to, that talks about the um, ability of meditation to have a neuroplastic effect, to relaminate pathways in our brain that can help us get control of some of our amygdala responses and some of these. Um, do you have a, a sort of view on that? Or I've, I've heard you speak about that, that neuroplastic um, effect of meditation. I'd be really interested in learning more. Yeah, I, when I first began, you know, studying to be a teacher, I dived deep into the, the neuroscience and I think it just keeps emerging year by year. So yeah. um, my finger is not on the pulse probably as, as much as it should be. But, you know, you talk about that principle that, you know, the brain is this ever-evolving structure and once upon a time neuroscience just universally agreed that the mind after a certain period of time had become fixed and set in its ways and there was little an individual could do to change that. And of course, that, that idea has advanced significantly so much so that we understand that the brain is changing moment to moment, but it's done, does so based on exposure. So whatever you condition your mind to do, it becomes hardwired for that mm. experience. And so often if people wanting to, you know, change their state of being or who they are or what's happening for them as an individual, which is ultimately, I think, what this conversation is heading to today, they need to take in that neuro neurological aspect because you can get caught in a particular state or way of being or thinking because your brain has been, you know, wired for that and firing in those yeah. patterns. You know, your neural architecture needs a little bit of a reboot. So meditation is certainly a way in which you can trigger this holistic response within the brain and wake up different centres and actually increase the grey matter and cause the amygdala to actually shrink down because... You know, if you look at why is the amygdala doing that, because this person's in a particular mode throughout each, you know, part of their day where they're feeling defensive or they're feeling stressed. So that part of their brain is coming online because it's believing that's what we need to do. We're in a sort of a mode where we need to defend ourselves because there's potential threats in the environment. And if that's not challenged, you become hardwired for that and that becomes your default setting. So what I guess the value, one of the values of meditation is it can reverse that trend completely where you go from being in a tense, protective, fight-or-flight-based state to being in this state where your whole system's feeling relaxed, feeling calm, feeling like it's healed and it can let go. And then with that, there's this increase in blood flow to the brain. So functional lesions in the brain actually get healed within a matter of sometimes weeks or months just through that process of invoking this meditative state and this state of coherence within the different brain centers so this orderliness is very healing and 
it's supportive for all cognitive functions to actually improve. I, I love, and I'm no expert, but I love reading about the, the science of neuroplasticity because it kind of reinforces what I think humans have known forever that, you know, this Norman, Norman Deutsch who wrote The Brain That Changes Itself, he says, I think he's quoting someone else saying neurons that fire together, wire together, which is the kind of science aspect. But it's kind of the habits we develop are, are how we're going to live and how we're going to respond. And it's a, a really interesting correlation between what I think we'd intuitively know that if you can practice calming techniques like meditation, that you're going to be a calmer person. But to back it up with that science is fascinating. Yeah, I think it validates the practices and then it makes people find that they can have this place of surrender and comfort knowing that what they're doing is legitimate but also be more invested in the process because we are a bit of a microwave society. You know, we want things really fast. Yep. And spirituality doesn't tend to work that way. Like self-development, it's a journey, it's a process. Which leads to the the next thing I'm really interested in. There seems to be you know, in a real general sense, maybe two big barriers to entry for people getting into meditation. One, and maybe particularly for, for blokes, is that it, it seems to be ethereal and airy-fairy, and, and hopefully the science is starting to break down some of that. But I'd interest, be interested in your thoughts on, on how we can make it, you know, meditation for blokes, how, it, how we can make it more accessible, but also the time thing, which maybe we'll come back to, how we can, can fit it into our day. But that one about that barrier to entry, and um, do you think the perception of meditation as this thing that hippies do is, is slowly being eroded, and, and how can we better um, bring people's awareness to the benefits? Yeah, I think massively. You know, you look at, I think celebrities in this way have, have done meditation a massive service. Mm -hmm. You look at some, you know, powerhouse humans um, that say that meditation is their secret source, like Hugh Jackman or there's loads of other actors. But um, the late, great Kobe Bryant, you know, he said he meditated every day. And it's just something that enhances your activity. And I think the, the things which people feel reluctant, you know, to, to do based on an old idea is something that they just need to identify and let go of because... Mm. Meditation, it's, it's for anyone who has a brain and values their state of mind. And I think, you know, the traditional Aussie bloke is like, what do I need that crap for? But the statistics show that we do need that crap because there's a lot of men suffering and suiciding and feeling depressed and unfulfilled and, yeah. you know, stressed out in our world and there's a lot of anxiety. And, and for men, even more so, we can't talk about it. You know, men team seem to like hold, hold it within themselves and, then it just creates this melting pot where they erupt and explode or they implode. So I think people just need to change like their story around what meditation is. It's not like a belief system. It's not a religion. It's not anything that's asking you to do anything more than just sit and change your brain state and your physiological state by just engaging in a very innocent process. And you can take or leave any of your philosophy, but the, the, the technique itself is universal and it, and it works universally because it's, it's affecting the nervous system first and foremost. And everyone listening to this has one of those. <laughs> okay, so we've broken down the first barrier to entry. What about the second one, time? Um, <clears throat> what is there, and you spoke about the microwave society, I'm going to ask a microwave society question. What's the yeah. <laughs> sort of minimum time <laughs> to, to get a benefit? <laughs> is there micro meditation? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, is there a minimum time that you need to practice in order to experience benefit? I would say one of the key things about meditation is the consistency factor. Okay. Because we are what we do daily. That neuroscience principle obviously is through that consistent exposure, 
you're creating this new neural network, you're changing the neural architecture. Um, and I would say what the, the technique I practice and teach Vedic meditation, it's ideal to do twice a day. That's the mm. recommended sort of practice. You do 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon or evening. And some people say, oh, my God, I don't have time to meditate for 20 minutes. You know, and the, the Zen joke is if you don't have time for 20 minutes, then you better be doing it for an hour at least. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I always say to people, there's 1,440 minutes in a day. Mm. So if you're having to dedicate 40 minutes, you still have 1,400 left. And what people don't recognize is that just by taking time out and resetting themselves mentally, neurologically, their life is very different. They have this headspace, so they have better ideas. They're more productive. They have faster reaction times. They uh, become just more resourceful. And, you know, you have this magical mind that actually is there at your disposal rather than being crowded with thought and problems and different kind of compounded ideas. So I think we have to recognize as human beings that our number one asset is, is our mind mm. and it's the most neglected um, resource that we have. And those that are using it actually gain an edge on, on their competition and on themselves. And I think that classic wake-up call, when you look at your phone's screen time, you know, you, you quickly find that you, you do have 20 minutes in your day that you, you probably spent doing nugatory stuff on your phone. Yeah, exactly. You know, just getting um, some popcorn from on the, on, the, on the iPhone. <laughs> so I think it has a lot to do with what do people value. You know, mm. That's what I always try to get people to, to connect with. I don't try to impose anything, but just asking that question, like what's the most valuable thing to you? And what people tend to forget is oh, me. The thing that I should value most mm. is my state of being, my state of mind, my state of consciousness, because that's the ground state from which I experience this whole thing we call human life. You know, we all know people who are highly wealthy and successful who have made it from the outside, but, you, you know, you get inside them and, like, man, I'm miserable, I feel unfulfilled, you know, my life's crap. And so there's this idea that there's something more to the picture than we're being told or that we're investing our time and energy in. Because as a culture, we're all just out there nine to five every day mm. grinding to get somewhere. Yep. And we don't realize, well, when you get to that place that your mind's projected it into, you're still going to be the same person you are now. Mm. Like a buddy of mine, he's managed to buy a beautiful multi-million dollar home up here in the most tightly held area of, of Byron and... In anyone's account, he's like living the dream. And, you know, he's got this beautiful woman in his life and, um, you know, he always had sort of challenges committing or being feeling like he was ready. So, like, he's also self-made, so he doesn't really have to work that much and he can live a great life. And we are out in the surf the other day and I'm like, man, look at you, look how, how, how much your life's changed since we first met. And he said, yeah, you know, the girl, the house, blah, blah, blah. And he said, but none of it means anything. None of it changes anything. Hmm. It's all you. It's all how you are within yourself. All these, all these externalities, they, they don't really change anything in the end, which is kind of annoying, right? Because most of society is participating in that illusion that I'm going to find fulfillment yeah. when I get yeah. here. And we're, we're always on this quest to conquer or acquire or, you know, attain something. And I think, you know, people are rapidly realizing it's the process of life that matters most. That's what the whole thing's about. It's this movement and this journey of human life and just cherishing 
where you are and what you are and how you're living and what, what good you're generating in your life. When you, you started the discussion, and I think you used the term householder, which I, I hadn't heard before, but that idea of a spiritual person who's still sort of living the, the path of society, yeah. it got me thinking, can material possessions bring you happiness? They, they can bring you physical comfort. Mm-hmm. Happiness is, and if you, you, know, you talk to anyone who really understands what happiness means, they understand it's, it's mercurial and it's temporal and it's generally dependent on something. And this is the danger, that that thing that you're dependent on to bring you happiness could also bring you misery if it's taken away or it changes or you change your ideas about how you feel about it. So happiness isn't permanent. And this is, you mentioned a word before, nirvana, that's permanent happiness. That's a state of fulfilment or contentment, that's santosha, that state where your feeling of happiness and fulfilment and contentment is more derived from directly within your own being. So material things, they, they're not to be, um, you know, set on fire and done away with, certainly not as householder people. We realise they're there to make our lives more comfortable, but they don't bring happiness. Mm. You know, I, I, I once used to drive the ugliest car ever. And, you know, I was doing this work with this, you know, this guy who was worth hundreds of millions of dollars and I turned up to his, um, his sort of penthouse one time in Bondi and did some work with him and, and then he said, oh, you're leaving, can I get a lift with you? And I was like, oh, no, I felt so <laughs> embarrassed. And I was like, no, mate, I've got a taxi here, sorry, I can't help you. Um, and, and then I realised, God, I've been defining myself by this freaking car. You know, I'm embarrassed for people to see this, this hideous thing. And then, you know, recently I've acquired a new car and it's a, you know, a beautiful car, but it's just a car now after two weeks. Mm. It was great for a week and then 10 days and two weeks, but I still enjoy driving it. But I'm the same person I was before I had the car. Mm-hmm. And the same thing's true, you know, of a bank balance or of a promotion or all of that stuff. They, they have this wonderful impact initially but you just normalise these things. Mm. And you talked about Eckhart Tolle before his dawning realisation occurred living on the streets of London when you know he was having some mental health issues and everything was taken away from him. You don't get any more basic than sleeping rough on the streets and it was only when all those things were taken from him did he have the dawning realisation that now I'm me. I'm devoid of all ego. There's nothing I can brag about. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the enlightenment. We touched really briefly on psychedelics before. Um, I've never dabbled. <laughs> I don't know much about them, um, but I'm, I'm hearing more and more. Maybe it's confirmation bias. Certainly there was a recent Joe Rogan podcast on this idea of psychedelics as a gateway to open up that sort of consciousness. Have you got mm-hmm. any views on that, Gary? Yeah, they certainly do. Mm-hmm. They certainly have that power and that potential. And I believe that all, all traditional cultures had this connection to the beyond, to the Tao, to the dreaming, to, you know, that great field which is beyond the physical domain we experience with our five senses. And various plants and substances and rituals have been used as a doorway into that world. Mm. And so I think we're in a period of time now where there's this real human consciousness revolution taking place. 
And so psychedelics are naturally being heralded as, as a mechanism to accelerate that process of awakening. Um, and I'm happy to keep going on this conversation. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm really interested. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, we have lots of different, you know, sacred, sacred plants and sacred, sacred um, vehicles for consciousness. We, even in ancient Vedic culture, and a lot of people don't know this, the traditional yogis and meditators and whatnot, uh, they were using plants back then, mm-hmm. the soma plant, which is like a family of plants. And that, that's uh, also the drug in Brave New World, isn't it? Have you ever read yeah, that? Yeah, mentioned there. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Also the, also, the name of my retreat. Your retreat, yeah. yeah. Um, which wasn't intentional, by the way. Because <laughs> for, no, for our, serving up psychedelics, yeah, I was going to say to keep the population suppressed. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I was in in India, and I was um, receiving some treatment at a clinic over there, a Panchakarma clinic, which is really just time to re- detox my body and. It's very immersive for, you know, 21 to 28 days. And one of the great, you know, Vijas, the the Vedic physicians there, I I had uh, an audience with him and uh, and I said, look, we have this understanding that there's yoga, there's uh, meditation and there's these practices to awaken human consciousness. And, you know, these have been cherished and passed on. And I said, but what about plants? Have they ever been used in a way to affect consciousness because we know that all the Ayurvedic herbs and most of even modern pharmaceutical drugs about, I think it's 80 to 90% of them have a plant as their key derivative as the thing that's activating the mm. efficacy of that medicine. Mm. So we've had this intimate relationship with plants since the beginning. And so I said to him, in your knowledge, has there been a history of people using plants in the Vedic culture for spiritual awakening and he said yes mm. which for me was kind of blew me away because mm. i'd only read about it and there was a lot of hearsay yep. and, and he said in fact i've i just i found the soma plant not so long ago when i was in the himalayas and i managed to find enough to do, to distill it and make it into you know um a uh a herb or a, a you know a, a drink consumable yeah yeah so he gave it to these meditators who were doing these very advanced program and he didn't tell them what was in it because you know he's a vajra and he gives them all these different herbs for their heart their body for to enhance their memory and their brain function and all these things so he gave i believe like enough that affected two or three people enough doses for that mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you know, take this. And they just assumed it was some other little herb that would, you know, help their physiology. And sure enough, these people drank the substances and they came back to him the next day and said, what on earth did you give up? <laughs> and he said, oh, nothing. What do you mean? And they said, what you did completely changed our experience. Like, what was that? And he said, oh, no, just common herbs. And they said, no, it wasn't. Hmm. That was Soma, wasn't it? And he said, yeah, it was. What did you experience? And they described their experiences, which are very much like what people experience on these other uh, plants that you're talking about, whether it be ayahuasca or whether it be uh, San Pedro or peyote or DMT, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They felt this profound awakening of their consciousness in this movement towards this 
completely different dimension. And these were people who have been meditating, you know, yeah. as about as deeply and as earnestly as you can. Yeah. So these plants have this ability to unlock an experience that human beings rarely can, mm. even in a lifetime of meditating. Mm. But, you know, it's important to continue the conversation because yeah. a lot of people will hear that and then just rush out. <laughs> Grab a mushroom. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's likened to, um, and I don't know where this comes from, but, um, you know, if you have a mountain and you have two people that are, are keen to arrive at its summit, there'll be some people who will hike from its base through all the different, you know, parts of the terrain and eventually arrive at, at the peak where someone else might just get the helicopter and just go straight up there. Mm. So psychedelics are very much like just the helicopter takes you to the peak. But the thing is, it doesn't let you reside there. Whereas spiritual practices, they're designed to stabilize higher consciousness through the, through the very daily experience, which I mentioned before the yeah. consistency, because you know, you could be someone who's living a life of just, you know, common existence. You take one of those substances and boom, your consciousness experiences something completely beyond the ordinary and you return to your normal consciousness again. And I grant you, you will not have the same perspective on the world. Mm. It's likely to leave an impression that's long lasting years, decades, maybe even lifelong. The problem is it will be nostalgic though. It'll be a memory and experience you once had rather than a reality that you're living day to day, moment to moment. Mm. So my personal view is that there is a synergy to be made between someone being grounded in a daily practice that's raising their consciousness, that's elevating their awareness through this very consistent, integrative, intelligent process. And plants have a role to enhance that, I believe. Mm. But the way that a lot of the psychedelics are sort of being taken is in you know ways that there's inadequate preparation the space isn't held appropriately um they're kind of used as a i don't know in a very amateur way you know and to recreationally be rather than recreation yeah, yeah you know, often with the best of intentions yeah but at the same time you know when you look at these traditional medicines um they're administered by shamans who have been studying and practicing with their uh, mentors and teachers sometimes to do an apprenticeship for 20 years mm. so i think we're at a position where people really want to grow like they're kind of realizing the world is is very limiting and corrupt and our paradigms are, are just they're so defunct yet they're so resistant to change and people really like they realize they want to break out of just these ways of thinking and experiencing this life and so they're drawn to things that do that for them. It's the same with meditation. Most people are drawn to it because they're just over suffering all the time. It's a really you know, great. They know, they, they know there's greater potential. So mm. I think we innately sense that. And, um, you know, there's this surge of people wanting to really break out of their minds. And, you know, plants are just a, an incredible medium for that. But I really believe that there needs to be a safe container with which you know these these plants are, are taken you know there needs to be preparation there needs to be integration thereafter and you need to go in with the right intentions too because you know <laughs> if you've ever taken them they're freaking 
in, they can be intense, you know, and a lot of people aren't ready for it. Eyes wide open. There's a really great Align book, Stealing Fire by uh, Kotler. Yeah. Have you read the book? Yeah. And he talks yeah. about reaching this state of ecstasis and in a range of different ways, mm. both um, influenced by substance but also not. Um, one of the things he talks about that I'm interested to explore with you is the value of sensory deprivation in mm. getting into a meditative state. Thoughts on mm. that? I've not done it. I know there are particular practices and people have done them. Like Osho was a, was a big fan of doing that, you know, creating a, a dark room, completely blackout curtains and taping along the little lines of the doors so no light's able to creep in and, and just sitting inside that space. Um, for me, it's what happens when I meditate, you know, eyes closed, all the senses turn away and you become, you become identified with the consciousness field. Mm. the space of your own consciousness. So I think it's one way to do it, to just shut off your five senses, um, but it's not, not necessary. As you become more and more directed towards your own inner being or you're favouring that space of your own consciousness, your brain will just deselect the sensory inputs. Mm. So it can work. There's so many different ways to do stuff. Like it's amazing. You know, you look at how do you build a house, you can do it out of, Bamboo, bricks, you know, you can do it out of mud, hemp, steel, glass. So how do you, um, I guess, trigger a, a shift in consciousness? There's all these wonderful innovative ways to do it and different masters and teachers and enthusiasts uh, have sort of found different, different methods and they all work and I sort of feel blessed to be part of an ancient lineage that I guess develop practices and refine them over the course of millennia. And so I'm just sort of the beneficiary of a lot of that work. Mm. Early in the interview, you mentioned the importance of a guru in your life. Can you perhaps talk to the importance of another person, a mentor, an advisor, a coach, a guru in trying to transform yourself? Yeah. I mean, the, the word, I mean, it's almost like God or Christ, or it immediately can trigger people in different ways, that word guru. Mm. So I, I guess it's important to start from what that word means and those who use it correctly, what they're actually referring to. So when you, you break down the word guru, guru means darkness and ru means that which removes or destroys. So a guru is essentially a person or an experience or a thing which removes your ignorance. And often that is in an embodied form as another human being. And, you know, we do apprenticeships, we go to school, we're born into a family, we have elders, et cetera, et cetera. So that structure already exists. So if anyone has a problem with, you know, that concept of a guru, we've been raised by gurus. First guru hmm. is mother, second guru is father, you know, and then uncle and brother and all of that. So guru you know, in, in a more sort of common sense, is a teacher. But the truest form of a guru is someone who makes you self-sufficient, who gives you tools and knowledge and makes you an empowered individual. We all know that the, the fear we have around gurus, it's all about disempowerment and you're beholden to me. Hmm. But within the Vedic tradition, it's seen as a very cherished and sacred relationship where as an aspirant, someone who's wanting to grow and awaken and progress along the spiritual path, if you come under the care and the tutelage of a master, they can accelerate 
the fire of development in you. And the guru is sacred in that culture for that. And there's no way I would be who I am or where I am today without my guru. You know, he's, he's almost like a second father to me. Um, it's just such a beautiful relationship. And I, I, I wish more people had that relationship <laughs> and just knew how much love was inside of that. You know, it's like it's, it's exquisite, really. Um, when someone that you don't know was not your father, you know, you're mm, not related yeah. to them by, by birth or any other means, takes you under their wing, brings you into their heart and pours their wisdom into you, mm. but does so in a way knowing that you're endowed with your own wisdom and I'm going to awaken that in you. So a real guru is one that does that. And how do you find a guru? Yeah, it's kind of said that, um, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher emerges yeah. and appears. And, and I believe that to be true. Like if you have this thing called life, this universal intelligence, it wants for all beings to evolve and to awaken and to meet their truest self or their highest potential. And so the guru can hide inside a stranger. It can be in a book. It can be in something you hear. It can be in a, you know, in a revelation you have. And so I believe that the universe is always, you know, seeking to, to support us in our growth. You know, it always aligns with our intentions. And so I guess, you know, I, I always craved a guru as a young boy, you know, and was prepared to go looking for one in India. And I sort of become aware of a few, but, you know, I found one like who was a surfer who lived in Sydney, who, you know, was kind of could relate to and connect with it. And when I met him, I was so shocked. He wasn't wearing robes. He was just wearing clothes. And, you know, so I built up all these ideas. And yeah. so he radically changed my idea of what a guru is. Um, but yet fully realized. So to find a guru, you know, I think um, it relates a lot to, you know, your intention and, and um, I guess your, uh, your karma as well. And you can have many gurus, which is another thing. It doesn't need to be one thing. You know, within the Vedic culture, it's known that some people had like 32 gurus. <laughs> and I myself, I, I have a guru. You know, he's my, you know, my supreme teacher. But I've also had many other gurus, like an Ayurvedic guru and someone who taught me yoga, another person, yogasana, another person that was teaching me all about, you know, marmotherapy and different, you know, Vedic practices. So... I've had a number of different teachers along the way and even, you know, plants are great teachers. These are master teachers. <laughs> so I'd say, you know, that, but ultimately they're connecting you with your own knowing and it's just we're, we're somehow we've become separated from our own knowing, our own wisdom. And so a guru is essentially that which unites you once again with that. I think that concept of, you know, when the student's ready, the master appears is a, a beautiful way to, to probably tie a bow on this discussion. Mm. I anchored a lot of our questions on how do you sort of get into this and how do we make it more accessible? But the mm. conversation we've just had has, uh, I guess, provided so much more background on, on what all this means and hopefully mm. it makes it more accessible and, and makes a whole bunch more students become a little bit closer to, to ready. Gary, Thank you very yeah. much for sharing all of that yeah, with us. You're welcome. Just, just one last thought I wanted to say, like when you look at, you look at the, the role of a guru and the value of a guru only has value if there's humility, if the student's humble yeah. enough to set aside that idea that they know everything. And I think life cannot teach us if we think we already know. So even though, you know, I've had a, the journey I've had, I always put myself in the position that, I can still learn more. I can mm. still grow more. 
And I have some students that might come to me like, or you might meet and I think I can teach this person absolutely nothing. And it's just because they haven't really opened themselves up to experience or learning something beyond just their, their present belief system. Hmm. And so for a guru, they kind of look for the willingness, you know, the, 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 the level of devotion to, to doing the work and being really wanting to participate in, in learning and growing. Is that, that, that old analogy that this guru was with a student and, you know, he was pouring the student some tea and he kept pouring the tea and the glass just kept filling and filling and filling and then got so full that it started overflowing. The guru continued to pour the, the tea into the, the glass and then the student said, oh, wait, 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 Guruji, it's filling over. And he said, this is like you. <laughs> you come to me full. You think you know everything and there's nothing I can add to you. <laughs> so I think, you know, we've got to just be, be open to, to learning. Just not even if, you know, looking for a guru or a teacher or anything like that, but just in life. Mm. You know, the worst thing we can do is think, I know that all there is to know. I've learned all there is to learn. And I see that's a real... Uh, hindrance to collective evolution you know we always need to be looking for better innovation technology systems of government ways of relating you know different ways for humanity to surge and move forward you know the the biggest hindrance to that is a, a narrow mindset or a mind that has just become like you mentioned before that that cognitive bias you know where we're always looking to verify what we already know that's incredibly dangerous mm. you know it brings short-sightedness and, and narrow-mindedness and and we don't need that as a culture. We need to, to grow. And I think that's the value of some of the things you were mentioning, like plants, is it just can crack open your, your present paradigm. And something like that, you know, how valuable is that to a culture? I think it's immensely valuable. And Graham Hancock talks about this war on consciousness that, you know, there are certain aspects of our, our society, our culture that may feel threatened by, you know, human beings waking up to a whole different way of relating and operating. Hmm. Hmm. Gary, how do people find out more about you and um, your programs? Uh, they can, you know, come and stay and visit my place in Byron Bay and do some of the immersive retreats up there. Um, so I'm a byron.com.au or, you know, they can follow me on the usual channels on, on Instagram um, or uh, they get a little bit more information on, on the meditation technique that I teach via my website, just garygoro.com. Um Otherwise, yeah, they can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll try and help them by providing all those yeah. links in our show notes. <laughs> but, uh, I Go like to that. the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Gary, thank you for your time. It, it has been a fantastic conversation. We appreciate your insight and your, your candor with us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Cheers.
We love music and the arts and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day, and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on season one have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com.